It's Monday, March 4th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool 1, Jason Moser, and from Motley Fool Supernova, Matt Argusinger. Happy Monday, guys. Happy yeah. Monday. Glad it is here. actually the birthday of two of our colleagues, uh, both from Motley Fool Asset Management, Bill Mann and Bill Barker. So oh, a little, wow. little happy birthday to those happy two guys. Happy birthday, so the love bills. to the Bills. The happy Bills. Uh, Bill Barker is on the east, somewhere on the East Coast. Uh, Bill Mann is in India right now on a trip with Tim Hansen. So with the time difference, I have no idea when, if ever, he will listen to this. But, I wonder uh, if we should solicit emails from our dozens of listeners for like an over-under on their ages. Can anyone take a guess? I don't know. I mean, I, Radio at fool.com if you'd like yeah. to weigh in. Apparently, Jason Moser is going to put up a prize at the end of the podcast. Uh, we're going to talk energy earnings, high-tech machine earnings. We will dip into the full mailbag, but we're going to start off with the Oracle of Omaha himself, Warren Buffett. Uh, on Friday, Warren Buffett's annual letter came out, uh, the annual letter to shareholders. He was also on CNBC this morning. And, uh, you know, there's always a lot to dig into when Warren Buffett has his annual letter. But, uh, you know, one of the things I took away, um, and I think this was expressed in his letter, but it was certainly hammered home on CNBC this morning, where, once again, Buffett said that stocks are still undervalued relative to other assets. Um, and he called long-term government bonds, quote, the dumbest investment. Uh, but Matt, you know, again, keeping in mind that there's a lot to dig into, what stood out to you in terms of the letter, in terms of maybe a headline? Sure. Well, you know, besides Buffett's optimism, which we know very well, I mean, he really called out a lot of CEOs. I mean, saying, hey, I'm investing. Look, Berkshire invested a record amount last year in our businesses. We're going to invest another probably record amount this coming year. Yep. Billions of dollars he's putting in infrastructure, and 90% of that is going to be in the U.S. CEOs, we know, these days are sitting on hordes of cash. They're not putting that to use. They keep call- saying, you know, there's this uncertainty factor yes. out there, which is pervasive in the headlines. Buffett doesn't care. He- he's seeing opportunities. And why is it, you know, and he really calls it out in the letter, which he really has never done in such a public way before, saying, guys, you know, Get off your butts, start putting some money to work here. There are definitely opportunities, and there are opportunities in the U.S. So that, that kind of stood out. Jason, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, that was one of the takeaways. I mean, we heard these record amounts of cash that are kept on balance sheets. And, and yeah, I mean, Berkshire Hathaway just keeps on reinvesting in the business. And not only that, but he really touts that fact. He's like, man, I just don't see what everybody else is seeing. And I think he, he recognizes the fact that you do have to reinvest in your business to, to keep it going forward. Uh, he did also raise an interesting point, I thought, to... Uh, just other, just he, you know, he talked a lot about the insurance industry in general, and to just be aware of of the fact that a lot of these insurance companies are going to have legacy bond portfolios that are going to be rolling off here over the next couple of years. And essentially, what he was saying was that they, when they established these portfolios, they were back when bonds actually were a good investment. Uh, but with with rates being so low, that these companies are now going to have to figure out a way to reinvest that cash because if they reinvest in bonds, they're going to see a tremendous hit. Uh, to the returns there. So they're either going to have to do that and go ahead and take the hit, or they're going to have to figure out better ways to invest that cash, which is not necessarily a given. I mean, if everybody was, if it it was easy, you know, everybody would be doing it. So I think that really is a, it's a, it's a call to really how uh, unique and how talented this investment team is at Berkshire Hathaway, not just Warren and Charlie, but uh, Ted and, 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 uh, Combs as well. I mean, yeah. I think they all uh, really are doing a great job with it, and and I think that's something to really keep in mind going forward. Is that a lot of these companies are going to going to be feeling some pain of figuring out how to reinvest that money. Yeah, Matt, uh, to Jason's point there. I mean, Buffett, you know, it wasn't a hundred percent optimism. At least in terms of looking back, he called the year essentially subpar for by Berkshire standards. But he did specifically call out Todd Combs and Ted Wechsler as 
just having great years uh, managing their own portfolios. Right. I mean, it was it was bullet point number six. I highlighted it and <laughs> underlined it twice uh, in the annual letter. But calling out Todd Combs, Ted Wesher. Look, Todd Combs is 42 years old. Uh, Ted Wesher, I think he's 51. These guys had remarkable years. According to Buffett, they outperformed the S&P by double digits. Uh, and, you know, I love how Buffett in small quotes after that said they left him in the dust. Uh, <laughs> but if you're a Berkshire investor... You should be excited about this. These two guys are there. They're relatively young guys. They're investing. They're, they're investing a, a greater proportion of uh, Buffett or Berkshire Hathaway's investment portfolio. Uh, Buffett himself said he's going to up them to five billion each this coming year. These guys have the ability to really invest and take some really. I mean, we saw Directv show up in Berkshire's list of, of companies invested companies portfolio investments that were worth at least one billion dollars. That's a direct result of Todd Combs and Ted Wesler, that kind of company in there, you're going to start seeing more companies picked by Todd and Ted in uh, Berkshire's portfolio. And I say, if you're, an, if you're an investor and you're worried about Buffett being 82 and eventually you know, passing away or, or passing, on the, you know, passing the reins over in the next, say, five or six years, you should be excited that he's got two managers there that are there investing, and by all accounts, investing very well for Berkshire shareholders. Uh, for the first time in almost a decade, a company, a very big, well-known company, um, did not make that list of uh, being in the Berkshire portfolio to the tune of a billion dollars or more. And that's Johnson & Johnson. And let's be clear, it's not because Johnson & Johnson's stock had a terrible last 12 months. It's actually done pretty well. Um, broke out of that range where it seemed like forever it was in sort of the range of low 60s to high 60s. Um, but that tells me that uh, people at Berkshire Hathaway, whether it's Buffett or Todd Combs or Ted Wetzler, someone is looking at Johnson & Johnson and saying, you know what, we're just going to start to pare down our holdings there. Is that, is that a surprise to you guys, particularly given the year that Johnson & Johnson had and given the fact that, as we've talked about before in this room, it kind of feels like, at least for the last couple of quarters, they've got their stuff together. Yeah, I mean, we joke about it, but it, the last couple of quarters that Johnson & Johnson has reported – We've been pleasantly surprised by the fact that there was not some significant problem they had to solve for. Yeah, and I'm not sure it's necessarily uh, – I don't know that they're condemning Johnson & Johnson more than they're just acknowledging the fact that there may be better opportunities out there. And I think that's the thing is it's a nice problem to have when you have such a talented squad like that. You really can't expose and exploit all of your best opportunities. And I think that's generally speaking uh, what we're seeing here. Um, two other things I want to get to real quick before we wrap up on the letter. Um, one is that uh, on the flip side of Johnson & Johnson, you have Buffett coming out and saying that he expects Berkshire to buy more of Coca-Cola, American Express, Wells Fargo, IBM. These are Matt, these are not exactly small up-and-coming companies. Um, what does that say to you about Buffett, that he's looking at these four well-known businesses that they're already heavily invested in and looking to plow more into it? Sure. Well, two things. We know, you know, Berkshire Hathaway is a $250 billion company. They're, they're investing tens of billions of dollars. The companies listed are among the, the most liquid, largest companies out there. So just on a practical sense, he's got to invest in companies like this. But citing those, those what he calls, I think, the big four, you know, these, these are companies with, you know, they're, they're world-class companies, huge competitive advantages. They're going to be doing and making a lot of money five years from now, just as they did in the last five years. That's what Buffett loves he he does he he hates he loves companies that are doing going to be doing in 5 years what they're doing now and making more money at doing it and that's exactly what these companies are doing I, he talks about wells in fargo in particular a lot i think he's seeing a lot of opportunities in the financial space right now wells fargo obviously is a, a top tier bank uh, and i i wouldn't be surprised if that continues to become one of berkshire's largest holdings 
going uh, forward. And just to wrap up, Matt, uh, let's talk about the railroads for a second, because Burlington Northern, uh, he, it was yet another topic that Buffett made a point of calling out, like, hey, regardless of what some people are saying about railroads in America, Burlington Northern's doing great. We're plowing more money into it, uh, and even to the point of experimenting with uh, powering them by natural gas. What do you make of all, yeah, all of that? I love railroads personally. I mean, just from the from the perspective of the competitive advantage and the barriers to entry there. I mean, it's just it's so hard. Like, are you going to go lay down a railroad track? No, but I mean, that's just it. That you sounds know, exhausting. Tremendous competitive advantage, and he referred to it in the letter as the most important artery in America's circulatory system. And just that analogy alone was was worth the read. But it really does tell you a lot about how he looks at businesses and investments. I mean, you talk about Coca Cola or or American Express or Wells Fargo, whatever. He's looking for companies with those genuine competitive advantages that can you know generate those repeat profits. And again, railroads railroads are very much like that. And when we're in a time where we have to find the most fuel-efficient way to transport goods from one point to another, uh, and also we're facing challenges from an environmental standpoint, uh, railroads are just a given. Uh, it's just a given that they have to be part of that solution. And so I love the fact that he continues to invest in it. And, and I think the natural gas angle is, is, is particularly interesting. I was talking to you know Mac before the show, and... You know, the idea that a lot of the trucking companies like Cummins, you know, they're coming out with, with natural gas engines for the trucking industry. And, and just because natural gas is so much cheaper, I, I don't have a direct comparison, but I think, you know, an average gallon of diesel costs around $4 right now. The equivalent energy um, in sort of one gallon of natural gas equivalent energy is about 99 cents. It's extremely cheap. And so that excites me because Cummins and, and a company called Westport Innovations, which is a Canadian company who's involved in kind of developing a lot of these natural gas engines for the trucking business, they've talked about the train, the, the train business in the past. And so, hey, if Buffett's talking natural <laughs> gas or interested in natural gas, this might be the finally the tipping point where we start really using more natural gas for transportation in this country. Well, and another big name in there as well, T. Boone Pickens and Clean Energy Fuels. Sure. I mean, they partner up with Cummins and Westport as well. So so really, it will be interesting to watch these next few years of natural gas. I mean, who knows? I think uh, the solution to low natural gas prices is low natural gas prices. What, eventually, that'll push them right back up. <laughs> Transocean's fourth quarter earnings came in better than expected, but revenue came in light. Uh, shares up around 1% before we started taping. Uh, Jason, I think it was on uh, Investor Beat on Friday. You said this was the stock that you were watching. What did you make of their quarter? Yeah, I think it was a good quarter. I think that really what they have done is, I think that management genuinely is very (laughs) excited to be able to try to get past uh, the Macondo oil spill, which has really been just it's been a it's been a tremendous weight on their shoulders here. And the the recent settlement in January with the Department of Justice, I think it was about one point four billion dollars to deal with civil and criminal um, uh, fines. There, it doesn't completely remove uh, the the specter of their legal issues, but it really it really takes a lot of it away. And so then they're seeing a lot of activity picking up in the Gulf of Mexico, which is very important. That's a big uh, big market for them. And they said that the number of industry rigs operating in the U.S. Gulf rose seventeen percent to an average of 48 during the fourth quarter from 41 a year earlier. And Transocean is one of the biggest, you know, contract drillers out there. So it's a big deal for them. I'm, I'm interested to see how they're going to deal with this Carl Icahn factor. Uh, What's back, the Icahn factor? Well, back uh, when, when they were dealing with all of the oil spill issues, uh, they suspended their dividend. 
um, and they just basically were trying to, to shore up as much cash they could uh, to make sure they, they had their balance sheet in good order. They have about seven seven and a half billion in net debt, uh, but they have they have remained the, the dividend has remained suspended. And, and Icon uh, through Icon Capital owns about five and a half percent of the shares outstanding in Transocean, and so now he is pushing uh, for a, a dividend and a big one. He feels like that you know they've gotten the legal troubles out of the way. It's a good cash generator, and oil is obviously uh, uh, you know always in demand, and so he's he's really pushing for them to rein, reinstate that dividend. So I'll be interested to see how they respond to that. It's that's, sort of a that's, back and that forth. That strikes me as almost childish. I yeah. mean, I, you know, all due respect well, to Carl but, I mean, Icahn, the whole notion of like I own five percent, pay me. A lot of these battles that he initiates all kind of seem childish, don't they? But I mean, that's what these guys do. He's an active activist investor, and. And, you know, well, I just, I just tr- do that. I'm just trying to figure this out between Netflix, Herbalife, <laughs> Transocean. Name your company. Well, it's a diverse portfolio. Uh, wait, <laughs> diverse. I mean, it's just it's it's scatterbrained in yeah. my opinion. I, but I, I guess you know, Icon. He sees value. He goes after value. He does. Uh, you know, but to, to be honest, I, I never. I when I'm looking at a company, I never. I never can understand whether Icon's presence is actually good for shareholders or bad. It just it's it's, it's always, not it's, it's 50, not a 50, given. Yeah. And, uh, it depends on what it yeah it depends. I just on, love on the, the icon factor. No, it's the, the icon, icon factor. factor. Does this stock have an icon factor? Oh, just to wrap up on Transocean. Now that uh, it seems like you know, knock on wood, uh, the legal problems are behind them. Over the next couple of quarters, what is the thing that you're watching when it comes to Transocean? Well, I think, generally speaking, it's just going to be the activity in the Gulf of Mexico and how rigs shape up in the Gulf, because that's really uh, where they have you know a big amount of their attention focused. And so pay attention to that. Pay attention to the amount of rigs there. And then, of course, you can't ignore the icon factor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we wrap up with our final story, a couple of uh, housekeeping notes. Uh, this Thursday, March 7th, uh, we're going to be taping Motley Fool Money, uh, the Motley Fool Money radio show live at the Kogod School of Business at American University. Uh, this is Thursday night, 7 o'clock. So if you are in the Washington, D.C. area and want to come, just drop us a note, radio at fool.com. We'll give you all the details you need. Uh, and as always, you can email us, radio at fool.com, if you have questions or comments, uh, as a couple of our listeners did over the last few days. Um, uh, from Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa, Nick Puglisa, who was one of our interns last year, uh, sent a note regarding our conversation last week about Target opening their first store in Canada. Uh, Target, of course, based in Minnesota. Uh, he writes, during the Target segment, you said Minnesota is basically Canada. Thanks for throwing my home state under the bus. <laughs> oh, uh, who said that? Uh, and from Timothy, I believe I said that. Uh, and from Timothy Casby in Rostov-on-Don in Russia, can you please do the Market Foolery podcast early? I go to sleep at 11 p.m. local time, which is 1 p.m. your time. No, mm. no, we're not. You know, well, no. I'm, I'm just glad you didn't say, "Can we do it in Russian?" I mean, I, that's what I was kind of waiting for. Yeah, yeah. no, no. So, sorry, Timothy. You're going to have to you think of it as something you have with your morning coffee. Uh, 3D printing company Stratasys lost money in the fourth quarter, but revenue was up 23 percent. And Matt, I'm assuming that was good enough for investors because shares up about seven percent this morning. Right. No, it was a good quarter. the The loss in the quarter was mainly due to the merger related expenses. They they recently bought Obje or I'm sorry, merged with Objay, and the deal closed in the fourth quarter, so that they had a lot of expenses related to that. Should be one-time expenses. This is a this is a really this is an interesting company, interesting space. We've I, we've talked about 3D printing in the past. Uh, you know, there was an unflattering report out of Citron Research uh, about a month ago, kind of maligning the industry and and maligning one of the big players in the in the industry, 3D systems. Uh, but 3D printing companies in general have had a tremendous run. Stratasys 
is an interesting one. They, they really they cater more to the industrial commercial segment. They make a lot of major uh, printers for manufacturers who want to do prototypes and modeling. Uh, I, I'm, I like this company. I'm very intrigued by the growth. Um, they're calling for uh, revenue and earnings growth in 2013. That's going to exceed expectations. Uh, really, the exciting thing here is that you've, you know, you've got millions of people around the world who do computer-aided design um, drafting, whether they work for manufa- the manufacturing space or industrial or energy space. And the idea that you can take one of these systems and create a 3D rendering of your 2D design, uh, you know, whether it's just a prototype or an actual working model, uh, is pretty interesting, and this industry 3D printing has been around for a while, but it's just to a point now where it's actually efficient enough to actually do it on a on a small scale, and that's exciting. This doesn't seem, though, like one of those industries. I mean, we've talked about different industries where it has been said there are going to be a bunch of winners in this space. This, I could be wrong, but this doesn't seem like one of them, and the reason I mention it is because a 3D printing company called X1 uh, which is much smaller. I think it's about a third, maybe a quarter of the size of Stratasys, was up this morning uh, on about 4% on seemingly no news other than Stratasys's earnings. And I, I just sort of look at that and go, the Stratasys move on the stock seems like it's based on Stratasys, and the X1 move on the stock seems like it's based on Ether. <laughs> like, it just seems like it's based on wishful thinking. Like, oh, well, that 3D printing company stock went up, so therefore I'm going to buy shares of this other one. Right. Well, th- there's, a lot of, there's a lot of opinions on the 3D printing space. And, and one of the more popular ones says that this industry is going to be worth about $5 billion in 2017. And really, X1's recent IPO, you really have right now two major players in the space. Now that Stratasys is merged with Objay, they're actually going to probably be the biggest in terms of revenue uh, going forward. Then you've got 3D Systems. Uh, so those are the two sort of biggest players. Then you've got X1, and you've got also a company called Proto Labs. I think there are going to be a lot of winners in this space. It's big enough. Um, the additive manufacturing space in general is big enough to support a lot of players. Again, though, this is a risky space. I think if you're an investor looking at this, you know, and you're interested in investing in 3D printing, I would probably take I'd probably invest in three or four of these companies because it's just it's just, it's almost like it's not quite like investing in the solar space. Thank goodness, um, <laughs> where I'd recommend you buy a hundred companies and maybe one or two will actually win. But it is a space where you know eventually over time there's probably going to be one or two big winners and the rest are going to fall off. So approach it with caution. All right, we will end there. Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.